We're in a series called Foolproof. It's a study in the book of Proverbs, and it's the study of a topic that God thought was so important that he actually dedicated 10% of the books of the Bible to this one topic, and it's the topic of wisdom. Wisdom, something that we all need, something that we're all maybe not even aware of that we need. We desperately need that into our lives, and yet it's something that doesn't just happen casually, we have to purposefully, intentionally, deliberately pursue and seek after wisdom in our lives. Now, we said wisdom is this, that wisdom is the skill of living. It's the skill of living in the face of complexities of life. Wisdom isn't just knowledge, right? It's not just the acclamation of information. Wisdom is also not morality. In other words, not just having high moral standings or or values and knowing what the rules are. Certainly, it's no less than that, but it's knowing what the right thing is to do, even in the majority of life decisions that the rules don't apply to. Because you guys know this, like we can have great motives, I can mean really well, but if my actions are done at the wrong time in the wrong kind of way, it can actually blow things up. And most of the situations that you and I find ourselves in aren't covered by the rules. Like, should I say something? Should I not? Should I wait? Should I take action? The rules don't cover any of those things. And you may mean really well, like, you've probably experienced this, where there was someone that you knew meant well, and yet they did it in the wrong way, or at the wrong time, and it just kind of made everything go south. How many of you have experienced that? And maybe that was you. You're like, I meant well. I meant well. But man, I missed it. I missed it. We can sink ourselves. We can sink the people around us unless we have wisdom. Unless we have wisdom. Now, good or bad, I'm a person that has, I have a, a high level of confidence in most things that I tried to do. And part of this just goes back to like 10, 15 years ago, I was really into making and building drones. Before you could go and buy any of that stuff, I would piece together the electronics and make this like self-flying robot that could fly in the air. And so I always just told myself, you know, if I can figure out how to make a robot that will fly itself in the air, I can probably figure out how to frame this closet in. Or I could probably figure out how to replace this water heater if I can make a flying robot. And so I have a lot of confidence when I approach things for better or for worse. The problem is not only that I'm confident, but I'm also cheap. So I'll try to save money by doing things. But in the long run, I end up paying for it because I really don't know what I'm doing. And one of the spaces that this shows up the most is with like mechanicking, like uh, gas engines, you know, like trying to tinker around in my car. I just, I'm not good at that stuff. Now, we had bought a zero-turn mower. It was a great little mower. You know, it was like one of those tank drive things where you put forward, right, right, and left. It went like that. But I, I really didn't know how the thing worked. I really didn't have wisdom about it. I missed some important things. I mean, I knew the way that you made it go forward was by pushing on the sticks. That's how it works. And I knew that it required gas and, like, the tires need to be blown up and... And I even would like charge the battery in the wintertime. I knew that. But about three years ago, I started driving and I started noticing that, man, it's getting really, the engine's getting like really hot. And it started to make these funny sounds. And when I would park it, it would leave like a mess underneath the lawnmower. Who'd have known that the engine needs oil? 
I mean, how am I supposed to know that it requires motor oil? And so I just never dealt with that. I thought I knew how the mower worked. You push the sticks forward, it makes you go. But evidently, evidently I didn't know what I didn't know. And I ended up completely seizing the motor. I totaled it. The whole thing had to be sold for scrap. What's my point? Well, my point is that I thought I knew how the lawnmower worked by pushing the sticks forward. But the truth was that there was actually something that actually did make the motor go forward, the motor go forward, and it was the engine, right? The engine. The engine was the heart of the mower, and I can have inflated tires, I can have a charged battery, but if I don't pay attention to the engine, it's going to end up in a big, big mess. Today we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the engine for our lives. We're going to talk about our heart, something that Solomon identifies as really the driving thing in our lives that determines everything else. Solomon was the son of David, King David. He became King Solomon. He was the second wisest person that's ever lived. And Solomon said, this is such a big deal in your life. You have to pay attention to this because if you don't, it's going to wreck your life. You're going to end up having a big mess. You have to pay attention to what's going on in the heart. So today, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start by talking about the path of wisdom. Then we're going to talk about the source of wisdom. And then we're going to talk about the way of wisdom. Let's start by looking at the path of wisdom. In Proverbs chapter 4 is where we're going to be. If you have an orange Bible under your chair, that's page 435. We're going to be in Proverbs chapter 4, verses 10 through 27. And let's start off by talking about the path of wisdom. This is what Solomon has to say. He's speaking to his sons. He's writing to them after a life lived of saying, I've learned the hard way and I've learned the blessed way and I'd rather you learn this lesson. And this is what he says to his sons. He says, listen, my son, accept what I say and the years of your life will be many. How many of us are trying to extend our lives with like healthy living, like, like having a balanced lifestyle? Like we would look at that and say, I want my, the years of my life to be many. Solomon says, listen to what I have to tell you, accept it, and the outflow of this will be that your life and the years of your life will be many. I instruct you in the way of wisdom, verse 11, and lead you along the straight paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered, and when you run, you will not stumble. The first thing that I... I want you to see is this, that when the Bible talks about kind of the way of wisdom here, it always talks about it and often talks about it in the terms of, of walking. You're on a pathway. Life is a, a pathway. Life is a highway, some artists would say. It's a pathway. Paul later on, he would say this. He would say, be very careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. In fact, the word that Paul uses for the, for the word walk is the word to live. Be very careful how you live, not as wise, as unwise, but as wise. Living life is like walking on a path. And Solomon is saying, hey, be careful. Be careful of the path that you start walking down. Because your life and your destination is not determined by your intention. I intended well. I thought I was heading in the right direction. My heart wants this is the outcome. That's actually not what determines your destination. It's not your intention. It's actually your direction. 
the direction that you're heading, the path that you're actually on, it's going to determine your destination. And he would say, hey, listen, pay attention to the pathway that you're on. Don't just kind of like, like be here, but raise your eyes and say, where am I actually heading in my life? Because as you walk faithfully in wisdom in your life, it's going to take you down a pathway that's going to be straight, that's going to be true, he says. There's a subtle point that Solomon is saying and that we kind of understand about this text and that is walking a path is mainly walking. It's mainly walking. There's going to be some times where you run and where you sprint and like there's this emergency, but most of the time our lives and the direction of our lives are a series of small decisions of step by step by step along the path. Repeated small activities, sometimes boring roads of obedience. And yet, it's those small steps that we take that end up determining our destination. Your steps take you to a place that you weren't at before. And this is the Bible's way of saying, hey, your character, the wisdom, it's, it's fixed and determined not by like these dramatic events that happen to you, not these outside sources that like just, oh, I can't believe this always happened to me. And you're always just kind of complaining about things that happen to you. And you never have an agency over it. And it's never the decisions that you make. It's always what happens to you. It's not these dramatic events, but it's these daily small choices that you make. That's what fixes your character. That's what fixes your wisdom. As you look at this passage that we're in, if you look in verse 14, I want you to notice something. I want you to read this here with me, and I want you to notice that when you're at the beginning of the pathway, you're actually in control. He says this. He says, you have choices. Hold on to instruction, verse 13. Don't let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. Do not set foot on the path of the wicked or the walk of the way of the evildoers. Avoid it. Don't travel on it. Turn from it. And go on your ways. When you're at the beginning of this, when you're looking at your path and you're saying, I'm going to head in a direction, you actually have a choice. You're in control of it. Last week, uh, we talked about three different kinds of folly in Scripture. We talked about the first one was what Solomon would call the simple. And a simple person is just someone who doesn't know what they don't know. All of us can be simple about something in our lives at any point in time. Um, I, I don't know what I know. I simply don't have the knowledge. I'm not rebellious. I'm not disobedient. It's none of that. I just don't know what I don't know. But the problem is this, is if a simple person puts up kind of a wall of pride in their heart and says, well, who are you to tell me I don't know what I'm doing? Then that pride ends up becoming something that starts taking their steps down a direction. And Solomon would say, be very careful. If you, have a, if you, have, if you don't know, that's okay. It's okay that you don't know. But you receive instruction, you find wisdom, you make a correction. And Solomon say, would say, if you don't do that, if you don't have humility to seek out instruction and wisdom, that you're going to go down a dangerous course. And it would take you to the second thing that Solomon calls being just a fool. And the characteristic of a fool is someone who's complacent. They would say things like, I know that I shouldn't eat the way that I'm eating, but I don't care. I know I shouldn't be sleeping around the way I'm sleeping around, but I don't care. I know what's right, but I don't care. That's what a fool is. And a fool needs to like, stop and, and adjust the pathway that they're on. It's going to go in a bad direction. If they keep saying, I don't care, if you can say that all you want, but your, your arteries are going to get clogged. You're, you're going to end up torpedoing your life. 
because you said, I don't care. And you aren't willing to listen to wisdom. Solomon would say, if you keep hardening your heart, you keep going down that path, you're going to end up in the third category, the most significant, which he called a mocker. And a mocker is someone who knows what's right, who knows what's wise, but treats the wisdom as if it's foolish. And they mock it. They openly walk it, mock it. They have a hard heart. Now, what's so fascinating is the book of Proverbs actually tells us how we're supposed to interact. Not just like, am I pursuing wisdom, but what do I do around other people that aren't pursuing wisdom? What do I do with that? And, and Proverbs actually talks about that. He would say the simple. Well, you instruct the simple. Humility and gentleness. You, you help them find out what they don't know about. And then when you've done that and you've turned their life into a better direction, awesome, wonderful. But then when someone steps into being a fool, you rebuke the fool. Hey, you're actually, you're actually living in disobedience right now. That's really unwise. I'm going to call you. I'm going to rebuke you for that in love, not in judgment, not in I'm higher, greater than you, but I care about you. And so we rebuke them. But they say, Solomon would say, by the time they turn into a mocker, you need to stay away from them. Because by the time they turn into a mocker, when you try to interact with them, they're just going to resent you for it. They're just going to turn around and start firing attacks at you, slandering you, slandering the wisdom that you're trying to build your life off of. By the time they get to that place of being a mocker, they destroy everything they touch. And Solomon would tell us in this in Proverbs chapter 4, Hey, sons, listen, you're going down a pathway. You have the choice. Stay off of the path of folly. Because if you end up in that place where you're near a mocker, where you are the mocker, listen to what happens in the heart of the mocker. They had a choice, but now where are they at in verse 16? For they cannot rest until they do evil. They're robbed of sleep till they make someone stumble. And they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. They're robbed of slumber until they make someone else fall. You know what that is? That's the language of addiction. That's a language of obsessiveness, of drivenness. They want to go to sleep, but they can't because someone in their life has gotten ahead of them. Someone's doing better than them. Someone has more success in their career path. Someone has gone on better vacations. They have more acclaim, more polish, and they need to bring them down. Which, by the way, if you have someone in your life where you're saying, you know, I just wish that they would get knocked down a couple pegs and I wish they would be humiliated, you might be on that path. So what's this addiction? Well, it's tricky because it's not, a, it's not an addiction to a substance. It's an addiction to self, to self-centeredness. It's comparing yourself to others. Solomon goes on in verse 20. Verse 20, he says, my son... I feel like this sermon is brought to you by Dunkin' Donuts here today. <laughs> My son, thank you for getting Dunkin' Donuts, by the way. My son, pay attention to what I say, Solomon says back in Proverbs. Turn your ear to my words. Don't let them out of your sight. And listen, this is what he says. Keep them within your heart. He doesn't say, hey, I want you to memorize my words. He says, I want you to put them inside your heart. How do you stay off the path that leads to, to being a fool and to being a mocker? Well, you need to take it out of this realm of abstraction of just words on a page. 
You actually need to take them and bring them inside of you, not just in your head, not just I know about this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to digest this into my heart. I'm going to let this affect my heart. He says, don't let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. And then he says this. This is what I want to double-click on today. That was all just set up, okay? I was talking about the pathway of wisdom. Now we're going to talk about the source of it. This is what he says. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Read that out loud with me. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. One more time. Guard your heart. (laughs) Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. And your translations may write that a little differently as they pulled it out of Hebrew and into English. They would say things like, watch your heart with all diligence. Keep guard over your heart with all diligence. It's the wellspring of life. The life springs from your heart. I love that New Living Translation says it this way. Guard your heart above all else because it determines the course of your life. It's not your intention. It's your direction that informs your destination. Guard your heart because it's the thing that's actually going to move you in a direction and it might be the path of folly. So be be careful. Guard it. Be be aware of what's actually impacting your heart and what has a grip on your heart because that's going to determine everything in your life. What's speaking to your heart? I watched a documentary talking about the civic engineering of New York City. They would talk about the electrical grid and the subways and the sewers that were there, and they were talking about the water system, how they would take it from upstate New York and come through these series of canals, and they would bring it into the city, and they would treat the water and make sure that it was potable and safe and healthy for the 8.4 million people in New York City. And they said, we're not going to tell you where that reservoir is kept. We're not going to tell you. They keep it closely guarded. Why? Because if anyone with nefarious intentions goes and spoils or poisons that water, what happens to the city? The city's going down. It's not going to make it. They guard that. It's like, this is some of our greatest things that we need to hang on to. Above all else, we're going to not let anyone into this. They're guarding the source of life for the whole city. Above all else, guard your heart. It is the wellspring of life. Now, when we think about the heart as Westerners, we tend to think of it as the seat of like our, our feelings and like our emotions. So we would say things, I'm going to try with all my heart, with all my feeling, with all my emotion. But that understanding actually comes from a Greek view of the human nature. The Greeks taught that there were two conflicting parts of us. There is the body and there is the soul. The soul is that place of reason and rationality and the body is the place of feelings and passion. And they would say that those two parts of our nature are in conflict and we have to choose between your head and between your heart. But that's actually not how the Bible understands it at all. When you see the word heart in the Bible, it's actually talking about something else because Solomon doesn't say, hey, guard your heart, it's the wellspring of your feelings or the wellspring of your emotions. He doesn't say that. He says it's the wellspring of life, life. Out of your heart, what's in your heart determines not only just your feelings, but it determines your actions and your thinking and the way you perceive everything. Everything flows out of your heart. Everything flows out of your heart. Why? Because the heart is what you believe you must have in order to receive life joyfully. 
The heart is what you believe that you must have to receive life joyfully. Certain things that you would say, if I can just have this thing, then I can have a joyful life. If I, if I can have this thing, then I'll, I'll know I'll have significance, I'll have worth, I'll be worthy. And as human beings, each and every one of us, me included, we're looking for some kind of glory, some kind of beauty to be a part of. And if this person, my spouse, would just love me. If I, if I could just accomplish this career goal, if I had this kind of body, if I had this kind of vacation or this kind of car, then I would know that I'm somebody. And we all want that. We all want glory and beauty that we can participate in that helps us feel like we have the worth and the value that we want. And every human heart has that. My heart has that too. And I'm not really talking just about like what kind of religion do you believe in. It's what does your heart look to, to define itself. I'm a great soccer player. I am a self-controlled mom. I am an in, in-charge kind of guy. I've got a career that's worthy of admiration. What is the thing that you turn to that says, this is what brings me value and I'll be happy and I know I'm going to be somebody. And we've all made decisions for our lives that have come not even from the place of rational thought, but from the place of how does this make me feel? And if all you have to do is look at car commercials for that. When you look at a car commercial, do they say, look at our superior engineering? No. They have good-looking Matthew McConaughey riding in the Lincoln. All right, all right, all right. You're going to feel great if you drive this Lincoln, right? It's about the feeling that we have, how I identify myself. We all have that. So what's that got to do with wisdom? It's got to do with wisdom. It has everything to do with wisdom. Because whatever your heart has decided is its ultimate love. It determines all the ways that we turn all the ways that we make choices. And whatever you would say, this is the ultimate object of my heart, the ultimate love of my heart, it's going to turn into a whole way that we make decisions in life. Here's some examples. If we would say that money is our highest love, our, our, our ultimate, it's not just a good thing, but it's the ultimate thing in our life. It's the way that I feel secure. It's how I know I'm going to weather storms. It's how I feel important. If I could just have that, if that's what money is for me, then here's what's going to happen. I'm going to choose a job that may not be particularly in my lane. It may not be particularly filling or like according to the gifts and the passions that I have, but it's going to make money for me. As a result, I'm going to burn out and I'm going to feel empty faster than other people do. Or you're going to end up making decisions that are about your lifestyle that are going to extend you financially. And then you might end up exploiting people in order to keep up with that. Or you might even be dishonest in order to keep that. And all of those choices are kind of the choices that are going to end up wrecking your life, your relationships. And ultimately, it's going to bring about your financial collapse. In other words, if money is the most important thing for you and you're reaching and grabbing for that more than anything else, it is ultimate, you will make choices that will actually make you lose the thing that you most want in life. Here's another example. Marriage. Romance. You're, maybe you're one of those people that would say, unless I can find the one, the one Miss, Mr. Right, Mrs. Right, the one person out there, I will not be able to receive life joyfully. Unless I marry this great person, and it's not just this good thing, it's an ultimate thing. Unless I'm happily married, I will never live a happy life. Here's what's going to happen if that's the language of your heart. Either you'll be too picky 
and choosing the one, and they've got to be perfect and polished, and everything's got to be right, because you know it's until death do us part. It's the rest of our life. Or either you'll be too picky, or you'll be so desperate to get married that you'll end up marrying someone that you shouldn't, that would be unwise to marry them. And then what's going to happen is you'll be emotionally dependent and controlling. In other words, if your marriage is the most important thing to you, all of your choices are ultimately going to undermine you ever having a happy marriage in the first place. What if more than anything else, you build your life around your children, their happiness, their success, them getting on the cheerleading squad, them making it into this kind of school, their love of you? What if that's the most important thing in your world? You realize what's going to happen? You're going to either end up over-disciplining them, where everything has to be just right, so you have to have total control over everything in their world, or you'll undercorrect them because, God forbid, they ever be disappointed with you as a parent. You put up a boundary that they're just not comfortable with. All of which, either of which, are going to completely destroy your kids or destroy your relationship. In other words, if children are the most important thing, and they are your idol, and they are the greatest ultimate good in your life, your decisions are actually going to undermine this thing that you ultimately want. If your work and your career is the most important thing to you, you know what you're going to do? You're going to overwork, which means you're going to neglect your health and your mental health. You're going to neglect your family and important relationships. You're going to neglect friendships. You're going to choose work over all of those things. In other words, you're going to make choices that are going to undermine, in the long run, your ability to ever be a good worker. Here's the point. If anything in your life is the ultimate good over God Himself. Unless God is the main love of your heart, you're going to end up being a fool. Unless God is the basis for your identity, unless He is the main thing that you would say, if I could just have that, then I can walk through life joyfully. If God, if God is more important for you than money, only then will you be able to make wise choices financially because you'll know that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, that He's been faithful with me every time in the past, He'll be faithful with me in the future. I can trust in Him, so I don't have to manipulate. I don't have to control. I don't have to be dishonest. I can trust in Him. If God is more important to you than your children, then only then will you be in a position where you can make right choices for your children because I don't have to worry about, well, maybe they will resent me if I told them they can't have screen time today. So I'm going to do what's right for them because I'm not defined and directed by my children. I'm defined and directed by what God wants me to do in the lives of my children. Only then can I be wise. If God is more important than being married, only then will I actually be able to make good choices about who to marry. Because I'm not going to say, hey, there's one person. I've got to get the one. I'm going to find the right person. It's going to be, God has instructed me how to be the right person. And I open 1 Corinthians 13, and it tells me what love is. Love is patient, and love is kind. And when you read that fine print, you start to realize that the fine print makes you fine. And you start to be the kind of person that the person that you want to be with wants to be with. Because I put God first, and not them. 
unless God is at the center of our lives, not just in belief, but unless He is something that captivates our hearts, then our wisdom is ultimately foolishness on its own term. Because this thing that we would most want, significance, success, sex, relationship, a career path, all of that stuff will ultimately be undermined by the very decisions that we make. And it doesn't happen overnight. It's step by step by step down the pathway. And unless you define yourself the way that God defines you, you're going to end up becoming more and more frustrated, more and more needy, more and more empty. And this thing that you want, the recognition, the love, the honor, the power, the approval, more and more will be taken away from you and you'll get less and less satisfaction and you'll get more and more paranoid and more and more bitter and nobody understands and nobody knows where I'm coming from or what I've gone through and you lose touch with your sanity and it keeps you out of touch with reality. That's what Solomon is saying. You go down this pathway and now you can't get out of it because you can't see clearly enough. And you end up in this place that he calls deep darkness. Deep darkness. This week, something that's been on, on my heart, I've shared it with a couple of y'all. Um, it's a friend of mine, and I've actually, I've actually quoted him a number of times and told some stories about my interactions with him. I'm going to call him Henry. 20 years ago, I met Henry. He's older than me by 15, 20 years. And as a young 20-year-old, he was the organ player at the church that I was at. And he was the head of the doctoral program at the local city university. And he was the most published person in his field. He, he, he had 10 times the number of published papers. He would be hired by the Navy and by Congress to write research papers. His writing is in many of the museums that you and I may actually frequent. And I would regularly spend breakfast with Henry and we'd talk about philosophy and we'd talk about family and faith and we would just do life. We would go backpacking together. He was as close as a friend as I've ever had. And we would spend a lot of time together. And as I was sitting in his office and he had all these graduate assistants that were helping him do stuff, I'd sit in his office and he stopped and he pointed to a book on the shelf and he said, do you want to know why I went into academia. And then he told me about the story of his dad. You find who we need? <laughs> Thanks. No, no problem. We love our kids. Glad you. Thanks, everybody, for caring for them. And he told me the story of his dad. And that the last time he saw his dad, his dad was being taken into a cop car and Howard was on a stretcher getting taken to the to the hospital because his dad had just beat him silly for the last time. The last time he saw his dad. And he said to me, you know what the one thing that my dad ever did for me that was kind? Was he gave me a book. And he points to the book on the, on the shelf. He said, that book. He said, I realized in that moment that the only way I was going to be worthy of my father's love was if I had the smarts and the success in academia. If I could be smart enough, then I'd finally be worthy. And it drove him to succeed and succeed and succeed and succeed. And he was the top of his field in rationality and reasonable thought. He's brilliant. As I sat there, he said, you know, I drink four pots of coffee every day. 
My graduate assistant makes me coffee every day, and I put one tablespoon of sugar in every cup. He says, I drink two cups of sugar every day. And I said, Henry, you can't do this. This is bad. He goes, okay, you're my pastor. I'm going to listen to you. And so he switched from coffee to tea. But when he did that, his body like revolted and his kidneys went crazy. And he ended up getting a really, really bad case of kidney stones. Going to the hospital, they tried lithotripsy. They had to give him this really strong medication. And that strong medication made him go off the deep end of emotional health. And in that turmoil, in that darkness, there was a conflict with someone on our staff. And, and the person said, hey, Howard, I don't think you're being reasonable. And he says, I am the pillar of reasonability and rationality. How dare you call me unreasonable? And it just blew up. It blew up. And, and all those relationships were severed. Ultimately, it cost my relationship with him. Because he had believed something about how he had worth. And when it was attacked, the anxiety made it just blow up. I was talking with a gentleman who's my mentor, who was the pastor of that church. He's retiring. Wise, wise man. And as we started talking about my friend Henry, he, he said, uh, you know, after he left our church, he went to another church. And it happened there too. He left there and he went to another place and it happened again. I'm thinking about it because this week he was arrested on nine counts of aggravated murder for his ex-son-in-law, gentleman that I also did breakfast with and knew. I don't know what the truth is. I don't need to know. I, I'm not standing in a place of judgment. I don't know what it was. And my heart breaks. I still have nothing but warm regard for him. And my heart breaks for his wife, for his kids, for his grandkids, for the family and how the community and how it's all a part of that. That's my point. My point is that your addiction to self and your unguarded heart can ultimately destroy you. And it doesn't happen overnight. I guarantee you that was never a choice that he said, I'm gonna, this, is what I'm, this is the path I'm going to go down. But it happened because he had an idol, something that was important to his heart, a lie that he believed in his heart about how he would have value. I'm only worthy when I'm smart. Step by step, he walked down this path where he was addicted to self-validation, to his own competency, this thing that he most wanted to be seen as brilliant, be seen as competent, to be seen as reasonable, was the thing that ultimately undermined the thing that he most wanted in life. Guard your heart. It is the wellspring of life. How do you know what your heart is actually yearning for? How can you possibly be in touch with that? Jeremiah tells us the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can understand it? I just tell you what I've found in my life is that I usually can trace back to the heart the issues of anxiety. When I'm worried about money, it's telling me something that I believe in my heart that I need to be able to control it, that ultimately God is not trustworthy, that He doesn't care for me, that He hasn't cared for me in the past, He won't care for me in the future. If it's how other people treat me, I'm making the approval of someone else the ultimate thing in my life, and so... 
when that relationship starts to fracture or fall apart, and now I'm having such anxiety, life will not be worth moving on if this person does not love me, does not care for me. The source of my anxiety is often tied to the idols of the heart. Another, uh, J.D. Greer said this in the book, The Gospel. He said, if you want to know what your idols of your heart are, just pay attention to where your bitterness is. Who's the person that you, they've wronged you and you just cannot forgive them? It's often tied to some sort of idol that's in your heart. This person betrayed me and as a result, they got the promotion and I didn't and I will never forgive them. And bitterness is harbored in your heart. Why? Well, because for you, the ultimate thing in your life was to be seen as worthy and I just had to accomplish more than my brother or my sister-in-law did. In my, in my workplace, that's the ultimate thing for me. And so I have this bitterness I'm going to hang on. What is the ultimate anxiety? What's the anxiety? What's, what's the bitterness for you? What causes you anxiety when it's threatened? What causes you to act abnormal when it's at risk? Centuries after Proverbs was written, there was a group of disciples sitting around the rabbi and hoping that he would help them with wisdom. And the rabbi said, hey, soon I'm going to go to my father's house and I'm going to prepare a place for you and there's going to be a bunch of houses. And, and one of the disciples, Philip, says to Jesus, his master, he says, we don't know the way. Show us the way. Now what is Philip saying? He's using wisdom language. Philip was saying, hey, we've read the book of Proverbs. We're looking for the way to life. We don't know the way. And Jesus, in response, he lays down one of the biggest like thunderbolt truths in all of history. He looks at them unlike any other teacher that ever lived. All the rest of the teachers would say, listen, I've lived a pathway, and if you just do what I do, then you do what I do. I'm going to show you. I'm going to point to the path. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to point to the path. He says, I am the path. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the way. I have done it for you. I've lived the life that you should have lived. I died the death that you should have died. And I don't show you the way. I am the way. You know why? He could be the way to life. Because on the cross, when He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What He was doing was He, was, he took in the deep darkness in the chaos. And he did that for you and for me. And in exchange, the Apostle Paul tells us that God gives us in exchange righteousness as a gift that I receive by faith because of what Jesus has done on my behalf, not because I have done it. And when I start to look at my own heart and I feel insignificant, insecure, like I'm messing this up, like they're getting ahead of me, like I just need to strive over them, like what's happening with my kids, like why isn't the finances there? When I look at that place in my heart, what greater thing is there for me to consider that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son for me? And when God looks at me, He doesn't see me as like this screw-up who never made it that far who could not get a big enough 401k, who never got the corner C-suite. He doesn't look at us that way. Because of what Jesus did on my half, I am not used, I am not dirty, I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And it has nothing to do with my actions or my behaviors or what I've accomplished. It's all Him, which means it's not dependent on me. 
It's only dependent upon Him. And I actually have to define myself not by what I feel about me, but by how God defines me. That I am clothed in the righteousness of God. That's how God looks at me. And that's the glory, and that's the weightiness, and that's the beauty that my heart ultimately wants to be conjoined with. I am regularly going through this personal transformation of rooting out the heart and finding the idols of my own heart. Regularly. And, and the so confusing thing is it's, it's not always like horrible things. Oftentimes it's some of the best things. It's y'all. It's a church that I love. And I'm regularly walking through life with people who are going through this kind of personal transformation where they're being stripped back, these idols in their heart, through some sort of crisis of faith or crisis going on in their life. That's a regular thing that I'm going through. And my father would always stop me and warn me when I'd go through these crisis moments, be careful what you let your heart run to. Be careful what you cling to. Because in these moments, your heart is going to scream louder and you're going to start going for the bottle. You're going to start going for pornography. You're going to start going for control. You're going to start going to bitterness and anger to someone else. You're going to let it set up in your heart. Be careful. You have a choice. You're on the path. Don't go down that path to the place where you can't dig yourself out anymore. Be careful what you allow to define you because that's going to be your idol and it's going to determine the course of your heart. Here's here's what it takes. That you stop and you repent before God and you say, God, I'm just going to confess to you that my heart is in turmoil because I had an idol in my heart about what my life should look like, about what success means for me. I, I I have anxiety because... I always thought my marriage would end up like this. I have anxiety because we were supposed to retire together and now she's gone and it's just me. And that wasn't, I I repent of that. God, I only want to cling to you. Would you redefine that for me? God, would you make my path straight? See, I actually have to interrupt that thing that my heart runs to, be that food, attention from my kids, sex, attention from someone else. I have to let God define and direct me. That's the beauty that our hearts are always longing for. You have to bring the gospel into your heart. You have to gospel yourself. You have to gospel one another. That's the only thing that's going to change your identity so that you don't end up living your life as a fool. It's the only way you're going to get your heart to look away from the money, from the children, from the relationships, from your spouse. You have to look to something that's a greater beauty. Timothy Keller, as I wrap up here, he said, the only way to pull your heart off of one beauty is to find a better one. To find a better one. You can't just say, stop it, heart. It doesn't work that way. We all know that. That's just All that is is wagging the finger at yourself. You actually have to replace it with something that's greater, something that will change your heart. 
And it's only when money is second and Jesus is first that I can actually start to make wise financial decisions. Only when my marriage is second and Jesus is first that I can start to actually put, the, put my marriage back together again. Only when, only when Jesus is first and my kids are second can I actually start to guide and direct our lives in a way that's going to be healthy and not just whatever the kids feel like it needs to be. My parents think it needs to be. Guard your heart. It is the wellspring of life. And it never happens overnight. It's a small step-by-step decision. I want to pray. Let's pray. And then we're going to spend some time just... We've created space. We've set aside time to, to, to meditate, to think on these things as we worship, to talk about letting God speak into our hearts in these areas. Why don't you pray with me and then we're going to worship. God, thank you. Thank you for the insight of Solomon. God, how quickly is my heart drawn to lesser idols? Like like regularly, regularly. And Lord, we need to tune our hearts. Our hearts are prone to wander. Tune our heart to sing your praise. God, would you help us with this? This is not a like, hey, we've all fixed it today. This is this long road of obedience, of submitting our heart to yours. And for each and every person in this room, something came to their mind today where they thought, you know what? The place of greatest anxiety, the place of greatest bitterness. And then they filled in a blank. God, as we worship, would we just bring it to your throne room and like repent of that? Would we take that down off of the throne of our hearts and say, God, your love for me is sufficient. So I don't need to control my spouse. Your love for me is, is sufficient, so I don't need to run to just like, like glutton, like just being a glutton and bringing in more food. Your love for me is sufficient, so Lord, I don't need to find satisfaction through images satisfying myself. God, would we gaze upon your beauty of who you are and what you've done in our heart and let that change us from the inside out. God, I pray for my own heart. Pray for my own heart. God, I, I want to discern it well. God, we just yield, we yield ourselves to that. We yield ourselves to you. God, there's nothing better than you. Nobody loves me like Jesus does. Nobody loves me like Jesus does. Fix our heart on that, oh God.